I'm Jessica Denson, host of Lights On with Jessica Denson here on the Midas Touch Network. We've been covering the 14th Amendment's disqualification of Donald Trump extensively here on Lights On, and now the wheels are very much in motion to ensure Section 3 is enforced. Today, it's my distinct honor to speak with someone whose contribution to this discussion has been absolutely pivotal, Harvard Constitutional Law Professor Lawrence Tribe. Professor Tribe, welcome to Lights On. Thank you, Jessica. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Um, I, I thought just to begin, I, as I mentioned leading up to this interview, I'm so grateful to have you here to kind of debunk some of the arguments, some more substantive, some very uh, you know lightweight in trying to challenge Section 3's applicability in this moment. But let's just refresh our viewers on the operative language, at least as it pertains to Donald Trump. It says, no person shall hold any office who having previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereto. So last week we had the first major lawsuit filed in Colorado by Crew Citizens for, for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. Other groups such as Free Speech for the People have indicated their intent to file similar lawsuits. And I know Crew is planning on bringing others also what are your thoughts right off the bat about these legal efforts, in particular, this first major lawsuit by Crew being filed in Colorado? Well, I think I think the lawsuit that Crew has filed on behalf of six registered voters, not all Democrats, I guess some are Republicans, some are independents, but six registered voters in Colorado is the strongest of the suits because it goes carefully into Colorado law to establish that under the statutes enacted by the legislature of Colorado, voters like this have standing to sue the Secretary of State and any person that the Secretary intends to list on the primary ballot for president of either major party to get relief when the plaintiffs allege that that person is not eligible to be president either because of age or because of citizenship or because they've already served two terms as president, or as in this case, because they are disqualified by the 14th Amendment. And in Colorado, the law is very clear that voters are in an ideal position to bring this kind of lawsuit to enforce a clearly applicable part of the Constitution. Its applicability doesn't really depend on whether Donald Trump did or didn't engage in insurrection. It simply says, if he did, you're obliged to keep him off the ballot. Whereas the position of the Secretary of State is, no, I'm not. I can put anyone on the ballot. Well, clearly that isn't right. We want a court to tell the Secretary that she must obey the laws of her state. And among other things, we allege, and I say we, although I'm not a lawyer in the case, but putting myself in the minds of those lawyers, they allege on behalf of these voters that, in fact, if you look at the public record, and they've got chapter and verse over a 100-page complaint, if you look at the public record and the definition of insurrection and what it means to engage in insurrection against the Constitution and what it means to give aid and comfort to such an insurrection, then if Donald Trump isn't disqualified, nobody is. 
And this provision then becomes a dead letter. And we are hoping, I'm hoping as a citizen of this country, one who takes that constitutional provision very seriously, because it's a major protection against holding office by someone who has proven him or herself not to be loyal to the Constitution, but to have tried to overturn it. It's a major protection against that person ever getting another bite at the apple. A hundred percent. As I've repeated on this program, if there was ever a moment when Section 3, I believe, needs or should have been enforced, this is the moment. Uh, you were speaking of that lawsuit, and right, as you mentioned, there's actually no Democratic voters uh, among the plaintiffs. There's four Republicans, two independents. As I was reading the complaint, I was struck by the uh, way in which expl it, it explains that from their position as Republicans, they feel that their rights are going, going to be deprived because they're not given the opportunity to fairly vote for qualified candidates in the Republican field. So it's very much a Republican-led effort. And speaking of Jenna Griswold, the Secretary of State in Colorado, she's been uh, very welcoming of the legal precedent that this case seeks to to. Uh, form. She said she's hopeful that this lawsuit will provide guidance. And she also um, has said that secretaries of state, including herself, have been discussing this issue since late last year. So um, individuals like you have so importantly brought this to the public conversation in the last month or so. But apparently the secretaries of state have been discussing this for months. Right. And I, I do admire the attitude she's taking. She's saying, She's not going to exercise power that she's not sure she has. Whatever she does, she knows she's bound to be sued. This is an anticipatory lawsuit brought right on the verge of the primary season when it's still time to resolve it and have it go quickly up to the Supreme Court. I think she rightly welcomes the speed with which this has happened, the attempt on the part of the uh, president and his legal team to remove the case to federal court, which actually didn't have jurisdiction in this situation. That attempt is one that will cause a little bit of delay because quite predictably, the president, when his lawyers looked at it again, basically said, oops, <laughs> we don't really mean it. We're not going to oppose your motion to have the case go back to state court where it clearly belongs. Because these voters, though they have standing, that is, they have a stake in the outcome for purposes of state law. Under federal law, it is settled that a court created under Article Three of the Constitution, like the federal court to which the president's lawyers tried, the ex-president's lawyers tried to remove it, doesn't have jurisdiction. So it's going back, but that causes a bit of a hiccup because the state court has not yet retained jurisdiction to set a trial date, but it's all going to move quite quickly because the president's, uh, the, I keep calling him the president, former president, <laughs> former president the former president's lawyers uh, didn't oppose the motion to remand the case. So it's going to move quite quickly. And I think that's important because we don't want this question unsettled overhanging the primary season. And as you pointed out, the Republican voters here are saying we are entitled in our primary to vote for somebody who isn't going to get knocked off as ineligible as a matter of 
of the federal constitution were entitled to have a choice among eligible voters. It would be almost as though George W. Bush, who's now become pretty popular among Republicans, even some who didn't like him when he was in office, if he were to say, well, look, you know, we don't want Biden to be elected again, I think I'm going to put my hat in the ring. Clearly, Republicans, even ones who liked George W. Bush, would be aggrieved by that in Colorado because they're entitled to have a choice among people who are eligible to serve as president of the United States. Yeah, you mentioned the standing issue of Colorado, and I know that you've you've distinguished this case in your comments from other cases as far as being much stronger in these Colorado uh, plaintiffs having standing. Um, and it's very clearly written in the Colorado law because they are, I think, what is called qualified electors under the definition of, of Colorado law, which gives them standing to bring this lawsuit. Um, you spoke a little bit about the timing, and I've, I've some of the questions that have been raised as I've been doing these interviews, Professor Tribe, are, isn't this late. But I think the answer to that, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is that now is when it's ripe. If it had been brought earlier, it may have been rejected on on the basis of not being ripe because exactly. we're just now entering the primary season. That's right. I mean, it couldn't have been brought before Donald Trump said that he was officially a candidate for president. That was the earliest possible moment. But if it had been brought right then, it would have been so far ahead of the primaries, that it might well have been tossed on the ground that even though he's a candidate, we don't know how things will unfold. There are a lot of candidates whose whose candidacy doesn't really ripen and who vanish before the primaries. Now it is absolutely clear that since this is Donald Trump's path to avoiding all of the criminal and civil liabilities that are piling up on him. He's become, you know, the subject of serial indictments. This is his path for assuming power again, even though in my view, he isn't eligible to be president this time, but he seeks the presidency basically to either pardon himself or find an attorney general who will dismiss the federal cases against him. And then he will argue that as a sitting president, even though precedent is to the contrary, he should be free of state prosecutions like the one that Alvin Bragg has brought in Manhattan or the one that Fonnie Willis has brought in Georgia. And there you have it. So now we know that since this is his get out of jail free card, that he's going to play it. And therefore, there's no problem of ripeness. Absolutely. And we're speaking about Colorado and Jenna Griswold and um, the stature or position that she's taken on this case. Contrast that with somebody like Brad Raffensperger, who has, um, I would say, in my opinion, extremely disappointingly come out in, in opposition to the notion of enforcing Section 3 in his position as Secretary of State. Um, he wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week. He claimed that um, it's not really his authority to do this and that it would be undemocratic and that the <laughs> voters should be given the choice, of course, lest we all forget that the voters were given the choice in 2020 and Donald Trump tried to deprive them of that choice. Um, but can you respond to this position that I think is deeply flawed of Brad Raffensperger, that he as Secretary of State is not in a position to remove Donald Trump properly from the ballot in, in accordance with the Constitution? Well, he's in an awkward position. He is the one who I think quite 
rightly and thankfully resisted the strong arm techniques that Donald Trump tried to use in that infamous call, can't you just find me 11,280 votes? He, he did his duty in that case. He refused to overturn the election. Now, having pretty much alienated lots of the MAGA voters, I think he is trying to preserve at least a thread of credibility with them by saying that he now favors what he calls democracy, let the voters decide. But of course, as Judge Michael Ludig, with whom I wrote the piece together in the Atlantic Monthly, has pointed out several times, it's not democratic, quite apart from the undemocratic step that Donald Trump took in trying to overturn a democratic election. It's not democratic to close your eyes to part of the Constitution. The Constitution and the rule of law are the framework for the kind of democracy we have. And when it says someone isn't eligible, there's nothing undemocratic about excluding him. There was nothing undemocratic about excluding some of the 32-year-olds who have tried on various occasions to run for president. There would have been nothing undemocratic about excluding John McCain if it turned out that he wasn't a natural-born citizen. But I, in a memorandum I wrote for the late Senator McCain, together with Ted Olson, explained why, having been born in the Panama Canal Zone to American military individuals stationed there, qualified as a natural-born citizen. But there were lawsuits that were brought to keep him off the ballot. And if the law indicated that he wasn't a natural-born citizen, just being a hero and being a great man wouldn't have entitled him to be there, or being popular wouldn't have entitled him to be there. So democracy doesn't mean the same thing as popularity. It may be that Donald Trump, within his circle, is enormously popular, and he's going to give President Biden a run for his money. But that doesn't mean he's entitled to be on the ballot when he is ineligible under the disqualification clause. Yeah, what you're mentioning about the, you know, what we might call political dilemma of Brad Raffensperger kind of segues perfectly into the next subject I was going to raise with you, which is these challenges. I've read a lot of a number of these opinion pieces in the last week and challenging Section 3, and they largely boil down in my mind to the concept that we have Section 3 there for us to enforce, but we shouldn't use it because it's too politically fraught. Um, one of one of the uh, pieces by a Washington Post staff writer, Aaron Blake, um, asked the question, is it worth the blowback? Is it worth the blowback? And I I couldn't help but um, be reminded of a sentiment that I have had for years. And I was so grateful to see you echo actually this weekend in another context um, where you were basically saying that uh, backbone begets respect. And I think you referenced something very similar in your Atlantic piece um, when you said appeasement triggers violence. Um, I'm sorry, that was what you said this, this weekend. But in your Atlantic piece, you said the process that will play out over the coming year could give rise to momentary social unrest and even violence, but so could the failure to engage in this constitutionally mandated process. Aren't people who are afraid of political backlash or unrest in this moment from our us exercising our constitutional duty being short-sighted as to the long-term effects of letting Donald Trump on the ballot and potentially abusing his constitutional duty again. 
Well, I think they are being very short-sighted because it may be the case that appeasement is the path to tranquility momentarily. But in the long run, if we take those parts of the Constitution that we think are inconvenient to enforce or whose enforcement might cause backlash and then put them on the back burner or worse still, shred them or do what Donald Trump has said openly and explicitly that he would do, namely, he would trash those parts of the Constitution that got in his way. He said he would, I think his word wasn't just suspend, it, it was eliminate. I forgot the precise word he used. but Terminate. Terminate. Yes, he was going to terminate. Well, once we start terminating parts of the Constitution that don't work well for us at the moment, that's the ball game. I mean, then it's the strong man rules. It's might makes right. And some people who temporarily think they will not be the victims of the retribution that Donald Trump says he will bring, for one thing, they may be wrong. There may be a lot of victims. For another, you may not be his victim, but you will be somebody else's. If you really want chaos, if you want a world without law, a world where the laws that are inconvenient are shredded. Just think what that means. If you are, if you were a believer in the Second Amendment, for example, taking it seriously, you want to take it seriously. Well, there's a lot of debate about what is or is not a permissible firearms regulation. But if people say that the Second Amendment has outlived its utility, right? Too many people have died. So let's, we don't have the votes to amend it out of the Constitution. Let's just erase it, pretend it's not there. Well, that would be pretty convenient. And for all the people who die in mass shootings in America, I know that that's a temptation, but you don't hear them saying, let's just shred the Second Amendment, let's get rid of it. I think once you start doing that, we are down a path that knows no end. And I just absolutely refuse to go in that direction. It also is not practical. I mean, if what you want is to avoid violence, the last thing you need is a president of the United States who foments violence, who has done it throughout his career. Whenever he has these rallies, he kind of encourages violence. We know what he does. He encouraged, obviously encouraged violence against his own vice president on January 6th. So you really think you're going to get peace under this guy? It's it's both short-sighted, you know, and even in the short run, it's rather foolish. You teed me up yet again to another um, perfect segue by, um, I, I wanted to address the arguments that you addressed also in your Atlantic article from conservative scholar, Michael McConnell, um, one of the two conservative scholars, William Bowd and Michael Paulson, I believe William Bowd clerked for McConnell when he was a 10th circuit judge. Um, they, in this instance, have quite different opinions about the applicability of section three. And um, one of the things that McConnell has suggested is that um, he's not sure about the definition of surrection and defining January 6th as an insurrection and the fear that it um, might encapsulate other sort of politically fueled riots against the government and um, serve to you know, work against people who are protesting and maybe engage in riots. 
I don't feel like that's a fair comparison. I feel like having something led by the sitting president of the United States to have his supporters violently attack our capital who are counting votes to certify an election is quite distinct from a political riot. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it seems to me that they are at polar opposites. There have been a lot of riots, a lot of protests that have become violent. But an organized effort to get thousands of people to descend on the Capitol during the time when it is counting the votes, when Congress is counting the votes cast by the Electoral College in order to determine the peaceful transition of power from one administration to the next, something that has happened without interruption throughout our history, even during the Civil War. But to foment violence, to upset that, and to do that as part of a plot that also included fake electors, the whole elaborate scheme, if that isn't an insurrection, then nothing is. What You don't have to have tanks in the street to make something an insurrection. But I fully endorse the idea that we need greater clarity on what the definition is. That's what's going to be provided by lawsuits like the Colorado lawsuit. An initial opinion by the state trial court reviewed by the state appellate courts, ultimately the highest court of Colorado with review in the U.S. Supreme Court, whichever way that highest court goes, that will provide greater clarity. But in my view, wherever the line is drawn, this is on the insurrection side of it. It was, in fact, voted as an insurrection by a majority of the House of Representatives when they impeached Donald Trump. A majority of senators, though not enough to convict and remove him, called it an insurrection at which he was the core when they voted to convict him in the Senate. The fact that some of the indictments that he is now trying to fight off are not indictments for the crime of insurrection, which is a point that some people make, is absolutely irrelevant. The whole point of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was as an alternative to the criminal justice process. This was the alternative that says, even if you have an administration, like the one that was in power when this became part of the Constitution under Andrew Johnson, even if you have an administration that will not criminally prosecute those who tried to overturn the government, as his attorney general wouldn't, or that will pardon insurrectionists, as he was doing, you may not punish them, but you at least have this future safeguard against their holding power again. So this was there as an alternative to prosecution. The fact that the prosecutions that have been brought are not for insurrection. I get a lot of emails saying, but why wasn't he charged with insurrection? Well, there are all kinds of reasons why Jack Smith might have decided that cleaner, simpler, easier path to go is through the indictments he brought. That's got nothing to do with whether Donald Trump is disqualified. And so I couldn't disagree more with those who say that because insurrection is a fuzzier concept than the rigid requirements of eligibility, like being a natural born citizen, although that's a little fuzzy too, just ask the ghost of John McCain, <laughs> ask Ted Cruz, who at one point was fighting over whether the Canadian circumstances surrounding his birth didn't make him a natural born citizen. 
But this is a lot fuzzier. It's certainly fuzzier than the age requirement. But that doesn't mean that it's not part of the Constitution. You know, the word liberty in the 14th Amendment is pretty fuzzy. The words equal protection aren't very clear. But we give them clarity through a course of reasoning, both by courts and by others. And in this case, it's going to have to be the U.S. Supreme Court that has the last word. It's, it's as though you knew exactly what I was going to ask you. You answered my question about, about 18 U.S.C. 2383. That's the insurrection statute right. and uh, why it's not necessary to have a criminal criminal prosecution. But with all of this, um, you know, gaslighting, otherwise known as questioning of our sanity as to whether January 6th is an insurrection or not, I just went back to the dictionary and looked at the, the definition of insurrection, a violent uprising against an authority or government. It's pretty straightforward. Um, Coming back to um, where where I this add something, Jessica. Yes, absolutely. A violent uprising against, in this case, the Constitution of the United States. That's the language. It's not just any old insurrection. An insurrection against the uh, you know the bad local government in some city or something. This is an insurrection against, or giving aid and comfort to an insurrection against the Constitution of the United States, the central pieces of that Constitution, like the peaceful transition of power, every 4th January 6th, every quadrennial January 6th, we have a ceremony in which the vice president opens the ballots, the votes are counted before the joint session. When you target that part of the Constitution, that is an insurrection against the Constitution of the United States. And that's what makes Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, in my view, so clearly applicable. And clearly applicable here in this moment, in this very, very rare moment that we have with Donald Trump, right, Professor Tribe? I mean, another argument that that uh, Mr. McConnell raised was that this is going to be something that secretary, if we set some precedent now for Donald Trump to be disqualified uh, under the 14th Amendment, that secretaries of state out there in the future are just going to be arbitrarily disqualifying their political opponents. That's a stretch, isn't it? I mean, we haven't had an insurrection at the Capitol since 1812. So this is not your everyday occurrence. This was a very unique situation in history. I think this is, as we say, sui generis. But in any case, there is a safeguard built into Section 3 of the 14th Amendment against its promiscuous profligate use. And that is, it says that if someone is disqualified under circumstances that clearly shouldn't apply. What you need is a two-thirds vote in each house to lift the disqualification. But as they thought about the possibility of abusing this power, every power can, of course, be abused. And the argument that because this one could be abused, we better throw it away altogether doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But there is a built-in safeguard here against that abuse. And so it is, I think, doubly wrong as a matter of constitutional law, constitutional theory, constitutional principle, uh, to invoke the possibility against which this very provision builds in a safeguard as a reason for trashing this provision and not using it. 
Yeah, absolutely. That last sentence is is extremely important to bring into context. And just to correct some clarifications out there, I've I've actually heard that some people and I in in my initial reading probably months ago, I think maybe might have even thought this. Some people believe that that last sentence of Section three means that Congress has to make the disqualification. It's actually the opposite. It's that Congress can remove the disqualification by a two thirds vote. Um, On this subject of correcting very basic misconceptions, uh, Professor Tribe, can we go back to the definition of Section 3 and address this argument that former Attorney General Mike Mukasey is is making that uh, the presidency isn't an office as defined by Section 3? Well, it's an amazing argument. It shows how desperate (laughs) they are to, to to find ways of wiggling out of this. If the presidency isn't an office, what is it? You know, it's just crazy. In fact, Article 2, right at the very beginning, Article 2 begins by talking about the office of the president. It says, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years. In fact, Article 2 calls it the office of the president or the president and officer nine times. Nine, I guess, isn't good enough for the former attorney general. Maybe if it had said it 10 times, he would have believed it. Of course, it's an office. And what sense would it make to take the person in whose hands it would be most dangerous to vest the greatest power after that person has taken an oath and then shredded the oath by leading an insurrection against the very thing to which he took an oath? What sense would it make to say, oh, well, the president is exempt. You know, the, everybody else has to be subject to this, but not the president. Come on. That's past the laugh test. Although, you know, McCasey is in, I guess, reasonably good company. The Wall Street Journal editorial board bought the idea, not only in approving his op-ed, which I guess is a separate department, but in themselves editorializing that the president is exempt. I think it is basically the king complex. The only thing that intuitively, I think, could account for saying this applies to the attorney general, it applies to every member of Congress, it applies to every other cabinet member, but not to the president, would be thinking of the president as his excellency, as above the law, as having kingly powers. And that is, of course, the way Donald Trump seems to think of it. He says, I have this article too, which says I can do whatever I want. Well, if the Constitution really was framed that way. I don't think we would have ever had a revolution against King George and and the royal family. I mean, that's what not only the Constitution, but the Declaration of Independence, for heaven's sake, was all about. So, yes, it does cover the president. And no, the president is not above the law. Speaking of what it covers and what the Wall Street Journal editorial board is is uh, sanctioning on their editorial pages, I want to go back for a minute to Raffensperger op-ed. Also, these arguments have been raised by others in dissent. 
Um, and I, it's not every day we get to have somebody like you, Professor Tribe, on Lights On to really get into the legal weeds. So I want to do that because I haven't done that before, but I think it's really important to debunk these misconceptions. Um, a lot of them are addressed in the Bowden-Paulson article. Um, but one of them is that uh, the Green and Cawthorn cases were failures. And I think that that's a misreading um, of the results of those cases. In the case that was brought to disqualify Marjorie Taylor Green, um, <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong, but the ultimately the reason why it was not successful hinged on the fact that her pro-insurrection activity occurred prior to her taking an oath. And in the Cawthorn, in the Cawthorn case, um, it was actually uh, the original lower court ruling was reversed on appeal and the appeals court actually affirmed that a amnesty law that some people have brought up, an 1872 amnesty law that in, in for a certain group of individuals removed the Section 3 enforcement mechanism, that it was it would not apply in to future cases such as where we are now. So um, both of those cases actually were favorable to enforcement of Section 3, weren't they? Exactly right. Exactly right. In the case of Marjorie Taylor Greene, that was illustrative of a case where you can plot to overturn the government, but if you haven't yet taken an oath to uphold that government, you may be guilty of various crimes. The crime of insurrection, for example, doesn't require anything about having taken an oath, but you're not subject to Section 3 by its very terms. So that was an ill-conceived attempt to apply Section 3. And in case of Madison Cawthorn, the district court, that is the lower court, made a very bizarre decision. It said that the Amnesty Act of 1872 not only gave amnesty to the Confederates that it applied to at that moment, but ultimately wiped out by mere majority in Congress, wiped out forever the operation of Section 3. Well, first of all, if you read the Amnesty Act carefully, as William Bode and Michael Paulson did, it doesn't even purport to do that. But more basic, Congress does not have the power by mere statute to erase part of the Constitution. It takes an amendment to do that. And so it's clear on all grounds, as the Fourth Circuit held when it reversed the district court decision, that that's very, a very favorable precedent. Now, there was no chance to get Supreme Court review there because Cawthorn basically lost his re-election bid. And so the case became moot. As you pointed out earlier, it's important under Article 3 that you bring a case that's ripe for review that isn't premature. It's also important that you bring a case that hasn't outlived its shelf life, that isn't moot. Cawthorn became moot, but the precedent of the Fourth Circuit stands so all of those cases, including the one of the uh, head of Cowboys for Trump in, in Minnesota, all of the relatively contemporary precedents support the view that Judge Ludig and I and William Bode and Michael Paulson have taken. And I think it's the view that you're compelled to take if you take the language of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, seriously. You know, you don't have to have a particular flavor of textualism or originalism or any other ism to read the Constitution. At a very minimum, it means what it says. And when it when what it says 
despite the ambiguities around the edges, has a clear core meaning, then you really can't call yourself faithful to the Constitution if you want to turn away and not apply what its clear core meaning is. Speaking about the precedent um, that we are looking to 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 have set by these lawsuits that are being brought, in particular by the crew lawsuit and others that um, probably will be brought very shortly, I have a couple more more weedy questions for you. Um, is there a scenario um, where a precedent that could be set for Donald Trump that also applies to other members of Congress who engaged in insurrection? I think this is probably the number one question that's posed to me on Lights On. What about the 147 House and Senate members who objected to the certification of Biden's election or um, or otherwise very active in, in encouraging the sort of, um, you know, activity that Donald Trump encouraged leading up to January 6th, the Paul Gosars, the uh, Josh Hawley's. Can this apply to members of Congress? I mean, it's written right into Section 3, shouldn't it? Well, it's possible. There are counter arguments that Congress has its own mechanism for expelling members by a vote of two thirds. There's also the speech and debate clause that creates certain immunities for members of Congress that doesn't really have its parallel because as the um, court most recently held in refusing Mark Meadows' attempt to remove his prosecution to federal court. It's not part of the executive branch's job to tell the states how to conduct their elections. So there are distinctions with members of Congress, though members who outside their official role of counting and lodging protests, members who outside of that might have plotted to help the insurrectionists gain access to the Capitol, maybe they are disqualified having taken an oath. But you know, one thing at a time, it's hard enough to figure out how to apply this seriously to the president without too much worrying about the fact that, that it will not be a decision good for one day and one train only. But that cuts both ways. A decision not to apply it to the president in this case will itself be an important precedent and perhaps a dangerous one for the future. I like to think, however, of the trail that is going to be made by this litigation as a kind of vapor trail in the constitutional constellation. It's a vapor trail which wherever it ends up, it's going to be an important part of our history. And what I hope is that as it gets higher and higher in the judicial system, even to a court that sometimes seems more faithful to its partisan political ideology than to principles of law, that the vapor trail will hold us in good stead historically, that the story that is told by this litigation will be the story of a difficult to apply constitutional provision that was taken seriously when it most needed to be. Yeah, that vapor trail to me is is the test of of, of our willingness and uh, I think faithfulness, patriotism, courage in this moment, um, all of us as citizens and up to those justices sitting on the high court, history is going to look back on us and ask, did we do the right thing in this moment? Right. Um, I wanted to just following on that thread of, of, of the Supreme Court hearing this case with the hopes that this litigation does move swiftly and arrive at the Supreme Court. Um, if we can just engage in a hypothetical to address one more challenge to enforcing Section 3 that I saw raised. Um, if, let's say, it reaches the Supreme Court and they 
they rule in favor of Section 3 being applied to Donald Trump. Wouldn't that apply? I mean, wouldn't all secretaries of state nationwide be bound to that precedent? I saw somebody raise the suggestion that some states could keep him off the ballot and others would have him on it and that would create chaos. But if a precedent is set, that would that would apply nationwide, wouldn't it? Yes, it's quite clear that what the court says would would be immediately law in all 50 states. And it's true that sometimes states defy what's going on in Alabama. Uh, is at the moment defying a Supreme Court decision about redistricting. Um, yes. I think that when that case gets back to the Supreme Court, they're going to tell Alabama where to go. Um, I think we still have, even though it is rapidly losing respect, and even though its opinions are opinions that we are certainly free to challenge and try to to argue against, we still have the rule of law in this country. And indispensable to that is having a highest court whose judgments are respected and whose decrees are followed. And I think this one would be followed throughout the country. Good. Very good to know. Uh, before I let you go, Professor Tribe, I have to I have to ask you, you've mentioned several times uh, conservative judge Michael Luttig, and the two of you have come together to form this extremely dynamic duo, um, such a powerful voice with the two of you on, on different ends of an ideological spectrum. I'm just curious how this collaboration came about. Well, we've worked together on a great many things, because even though he's a very rock-reared Republican, and I'm quite a loyal, liberal, progressive Democrat, and we disagree about all kinds of contentious, substantive issues, we both agree and have long agreed on some core constitutional precepts. So, for example, he brought me on board as chief constitutional counsel for a private company, Coca-Cola, some years ago, uh, which is involved in a constitutional wrestling match with the Internal Revenue Service. We have different views, I guess, of Coca-Cola, although I happen to like it. <laughs> uh, we have different views of abortion, affirmative action, you name it. But we both think the government should turn square corners. It should be fair. It should apply due process principles. And it should apply Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So we've become good friends over the years because we have seen things the same way when it comes to some really basic things. And I admire greatly the kind of judge he was, thought he would have made a fine Supreme Court justice. He lost out to, I guess it was to Sam Alito at the time. I think he would have been a better justice. Um, and so it's quite natural for us to work together on things where we agreed. It's been an absolute pleasure to watch. Um, and it's been a pleasure to have you today, Professor Tribe. Is there anything else that you would like to leave us with on Section 3 in this moment? Only that, Jessica, you asked some great questions. They were penetrating. They they weren't really softballs, although I think I have answers to them. Uh, and I admire what you're doing. And I hope people will take the whole Constitution seriously because both it and the rule of law and therefore our kind of democracy are up for grabs right now. I hope so, too. Thank you so much. Thank you for your words. And thank you so much for joining us. You're thank welcome you. back anytime. Thank, um, you. thank you to all our viewers for, for joining us with this special interview with Professor Lawrence Tribe. Definitely tune into Lights On with Jessica Denson wherever you get your audio podcast and join us 
Friday every night live at 7 p.m. Eastern for Pacific and periodically through the week with these special episodes. Thank you so much. 